0: Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 395 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, the first part of a two-part interview, Lucy Flannery speaks with Catherine O'Flynn about internal monologues, making the leap into writing comedy, thinking as an important aspect of working, and the act of writing as achieving a balance between crippling self-doubt and alarming chutzpah.
1: Lucy Flannery is an award-winning writer with credits in radio, theatre, film, TV fiction and non-fiction. Her short play, Bear Hunt, will be performed at the Ink Festival in spring 2022. She was a finalist in the Exeter Novel Prize, leads the Get Playwriting and Script Lab courses at Chichester Festival Theatre and is a member of the Writers Guild of Great Britain, Audio and London South East Committees. Lucy was the 2020 Writer-in-Residence at the University of Plymouth in association with Literature Works. Her credits include A Business Affair with Christopher Walken, Like a Daughter with Alison Stedman, The Story of Tracy Beaker, Tomorrow Will Be Too Late and various magazines and anthologies. Her radio sitcoms, Rent and Any Other Business, are regularly repeated on BBC Radio 4 Extra. She has co-written two plays with Greg Moss, Poisoned Beds, about the decline of the oyster industry in a south coast fishing town, and Lydia and George, which takes up the narrative 20 years after the end of Pride and Prejudice. She was the creator of the Havant Literary Festival, and a core writer for You, Me and Everyone, which has been confirmed by Arts Council England as the biggest crowdsourced literary art event in the UK. Lucy is an RLF Consultant Fellow. I spoke to Lucy at her home in Havent. Hi Lucy, thanks for talking to me today. Hello. It seems to me from the outside that you're a very prolific, productive, busy writer. With lots of projects under your belt, but it always seems like you've got quite a lot going on at the same time at one time. Does it does it feel that way a lot of the time for you?
2: Yeah, I think it's famine or feast, like most writers. Yes, I mean, sometimes if I sort of stop and added up all the kind of different projects in my head and all the different characters... It would be like um, you know some sort of sprawling epic like like War and Peace, but fortunately they all live in their little compartments. So if you think of it as a kind of road, I can sort of focus on number eleven and the bungalow, and while I'm focusing on number eleven and the bungalow, and I can forget about you know the um, the, the people in the, the big house, the big big mystery, strange sinister house at the end of the road, and all that. I'm not sure how far this metaphor is going to stretch. That's, that's a
1: brilliant metaphor. <laughs> that's that stretched um
2: <laughs> to breaking point <laughs>
1: <laughs> um i was listening to a podcast with you recently and you said about actually taking out context. It sounds like pretentious but it wasn't pretentious at all you said that writing's in your dna and that a, <laughs> sort of a facility and a fascination with language has been with you for as long as you remember I, i'm really interested in that can you talk a little bit about your sort of early memories of that of how you sort of began to be aware of that or your interest in language
2: yeah I thought yes I don't know I, I mean like many writers I was a prodigious reader but even I think before then I think I had an interest in stories um, in a way I can't really articulate but even as a child I, I I can remember sort of processing stuff in my mind as if I was giving it narrative form and I thought that's what everybody did. You know, I thought that's kind of what thinking was. And then I, as I sort of grew over, I realised that older, I realised that's, that's not necessarily the case at all. So I think that's always been in me, that kind of seeing things from that writerly point of view of how would you, how if I was telling someone the story of this strange trip to the supermarket that I, you know, and the row I just had in the, in the car park, I'm always putting it in those kind of anecdotal terms but but possibly a little bit more because everybody does that obviously you know everyone sort of spins and, there's, and then you won't believe what he said you know everybody does that I think that's just sort of a human attribute yeah. but I think I've always taken it Slightly one step further, and and that's that's the thing that that sort of makes me a writer. And I, yes, I've always loved words. I've always loved puzzles and things like palindromes and everything. I mean, am not clever. I couldn't sort of go on only connect and you know score lots of points. Um, I occasionally get one, and I'm incredibly you know insufferably proud and snug <laughs> for the rest of the evening. And it sort of sometimes carries me over into a university challenge and stands <laughs> me in good stead. So, but um, but one of the things that I do do is I've always turned words backwards in my mind and my son who's also a writer also does that and again this is something that I thought everybody did you know that kind
1: oh. of word play no I know I mean, and so instantly you can just visualise a word backwards yeah
2: pretty much up to about three or four uh, syllables after that I, I might have to stop and take a breath
1: I can see a gleam in your eye Catherine <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, not going to start throwing words it just seems to it's one of those like amazing superpowers it's like if only there was some way I could apply this in a, yes. in a, so that would help the world yes,
2: yes super world Bird woman, yeah, that, that would be me. I, I could see me in a cape.
1: Yeah, either save the world or, or if it was somehow monetizable, Wouldn't that be wonderful? Yeah. Wouldn't that be just, just yes, it's like spelling bees, isn't it? I
2: mean, yeah. I know people in America, you know, they, they sort of win huge, or children obviously, win huge cash prizes. So If, if only there was some sort of equivalent of turning words <laughs> backwards and people found this, you know, worthy <laughs> of attention.
1: Oh, and Again. I'm sure maybe your day will come maybe like one so. day there'll be some <laughs> massive computer failure that means they really need people who can turn words backwards yeah, I'm
2: sure it's only a matter of time
1: <laughs> so you were saying that um that sort of sense of imposing narrative on the world around you was something that you were sort of aware, doing when you were young perhaps to a greater extent than other people were even though you might not have been aware of it were you one of those um children who like in the playground would be saying oh this is what happened to me last night or was it more of an internal thing were you sharing those stories with other people or or not so much
2: yeah but both I think I think there was always this kind of internal monologue going on in my head that was impossible to to shut down um and yes I did I was a sort of you know and I and I did used to write stories you know from quite a young and precocious age and some of which were were atrocious obviously but some weren't, weren't bad, you know, for, for a six-year-old, yeah, yeah, <laughs> a seven-year-old kind of thing, yeah, yeah, so I've always had that that thing of, um, of being very comfortable with a pen in my hand, of being very happy with a you know, with a notebook in front of me, and and uh, and, um, and the, the other thing I always think about writing is, you know, a huge amount of it, for me personally, I think, and for a lot of writers, is the thinking, mm. it's um, I never actually, or very rarely do I sit down and start writing something that I haven't thought about for a very, very long time, you know, in some cases literally years. In fact, there's a quote which I thought was actually Einstein and then discovered it's actually Charlie Chaplin, which is annoying, but, you know, Charlie Chaplin's okay. (laughs) which is the, the real work was thinking just thinking and I think Mm. yeah that is me because it looks like I'm I'm
1: staring gormlessly out the window but actually I'm working (laughs) because I'm turning something over in my mind does it (laughs) when you're doing that does it feel like it's I mean do you worry that am I actually just staring out the window do you think no I I know I'm working this is fine (laughs) this is a valid thing to do because I find as a writer it's quite hard sometimes to justify that thinking time and separating it from Literally when I am just staring vacantly. I mean, are you are quite be it. <laughs>
2: uh, yeah, I mean, I think the staring vacantly is quite important because I think that's the other thing about any creative person. I think you can't constantly be outputting. You have to have some input as well. So I think it's really important to uh, get stimulus from wherever you get your stimulus, be it books or theatre or telly, you know, film or other forms of art, or even things like football. And also, of course, when you're a writer, I mean, everything is copy. You know, it's just Mm. like the overheard conversations. I know it's an absolute cliché, but it's true, they are gold. And um, little snippets of things in in papers. I wrote a a one-act play called Bear Hunt, which was triggered by something I saw about chatbots, the people who lost their spouse and they were you know they were sort of comforted in their grief by having this chat bot and, and you yeah, know what an extraordinary thing that's mm. that set off a whole trail of thought yeah and I wrote this really successful little um one act play which really resonates with audiences I'm pleased to say so so it's kind of like you, you need the kind of gormless vacant you know vapidity <laughs> I think and have that input as well yeah as well as the kind of churning over but that's all kind of, it's all kind of part of the same process i think because at what point does kind of just just idly watching a film become like six months later you suddenly remember something in that film which triggers something else which aligns with A bit of overheard dialogue, or you know, snatch conversation you heard, or an image you saw, and it all kind of joins together suddenly. Because I'm fascinated by ideas. Because I remember sometimes literally where I was when I had such and such an idea for such and such a thing. And I remember once cleaning the bath and having an idea, and I was literally sort of leaning over, and I thought, isn't it extraordinary that an idea doesn't exist in one second, and then the next second it does, and you can't explain that quicksilver it's it's like alchemy
1: yeah no that that's um that's very sort of encouraging way of thinking about those sort of fallow periods you know (laughs) or the kind of cleaning the bath moments that you know that that idea could could be just around the corner Um, (laughs) so as well as kind of this sense that it was kind of in your dna writing but did you did you grow up in a literary household with the books around when you were more yes, little.
2: yeah. Um, I mean, not not many. We didn't. We weren't really sort of um, aff- well, We weren't affluent at all. So very few bought books. But that was quite nice because when it was my birthday, and I got a book token, I got to go and choose books, and that was always incredibly exciting. But of course, the library, which is you know such a huge part of so many people's lives, um, my mother was um, an avid library goer. I'm the youngest of five, so there were older sisters and a brother who were all also using the library, especially my older sister, who's also my godmother, is tragically not with us anymore. But she was a huge influence on me, and she bought me some of the most formative books of my childhood, really. I remember she bought me Tales of the Greek Heroes by Roger Lancelin Green for, I think, my ninth birthday, which really has been a lifelong Right. influence on me yeah. um I've retold some of the Greek myths from the point of view of women and and have enjoyed uh those stories in many forms over the years and that that you know literally that that seed was planted there by my oldest my, my beloved sister Zita who, who gave me that book and, and many others you know that that's just sort of the most striking example so yeah I think just having books around the other thing that, that um sort of struck me Quite recently was that we had a lot of book club books,
1: right?
2: Those hardbacks from the nineteen fifties, and clearly they were just given to my family. I don't even think necessarily my mum. I think I suspect they were given to my grandmother, who then passed them on to my mum. So I've read a lot of these kind of relatively obscure books in quite nice sort of strong hardback form. Yeah. And um, and I can still see those covers and that particular kind of... Because most of them had lost their dust jackets, but they had that very nice kind of round archway thing on the spine that was very, very distinctive. Yeah, and I, that, it's always nice if in, a, in a kind of second-hand shop or something. You know, sort of sometimes sort of see them. And it's like reaching an old friend. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I, I'm going to ask you more specifically in a moment about comedy writing, but could you just... Tell me, what was your path into writing from, you know, sort of enjoying it as a child? What, what was your path initially into a kind of writing as a career?
2: Well, I didn't really... I always wanted to be a writer, but I didn't really think it was for the likes of me. Mm. So I sort of went off and got a job and, you know, got a career. I worked in the like government and sort of through my 20s, I was increasingly frustrated uh, not sort of being able to write. I mean, I did write, but I just didn't write anything formally. I used to write very, very funny letters to family members and friends. Masterpieces, some of them, really. They should have won an award. And that's how I sort of scratched that itch. And then sort of I, I used to do sort of, you know, people often do this... I was like the workplace clown. I was always writing silly skits and sort of joke memos and going around and everything, which everybody found hilarious. Or they told me they found it hilarious. Everybody probably found it quite irritating. Um, and then you got to the stage where I was thinking, well, if you're serious about this, you ought to do it. You ought to actually put your money where your mouth is and, and do it. And also, I kept getting promoted. And I thought, well, there'll come a time when I won't be able to afford to give up a proper job. So really, I've, I've got to just just jump. And I don't recommend this to anybody, um, certainly not now. I think, you know, these are perilous times. But I did actually just just jack it in and go for it um, yeah. because I kind of felt that was the only way that I was going to make it work for me because I had to sort of demonstrate to myself that I was that serious. And I gave myself two years, and I think it was just coming up to almost the second year and I got my first writing contract Wow so I was really lucky really incredibly lucky it was right place right time my very first job was actually in TV which is weird writing an episode of a sitcom that doesn't really happen now it's it's you know it barely happened then I still can't really explain it I think at the time they were just aware that there weren't that many women writers around and I think the uh, the producer just decided to give me a go because it was they were effectively running a, a writer's room on a long-standing, very popular sitcom um, LWT. If you remember that far mm-hmm. back, London Weekend Television Sunday Night Family Fair. Oh yeah. And around about the same time, I got picked off the slush pile at Radio Four. They had an intake of new. Uh, producers just started and I think they divvied up the slush pile between them that was like their first you know <laughs> terrible job to sort of clear the, the uh, all the the scripts that come in and I was just very very lucky to connect with someone who who read my script and thought it was funny and contacted me and we, we took it from there so that's how I sort of started off so my first proper credit was in TV sitcom and then my second credit was I had a, a series we got, they commissioned me for a pilot initially then they sort of reviewed it and said, yes, we're going to take it to a series. And I went, we went to full series with that and I won an award. So, I mean, how incredibly lucky it's was right. I and, and how blessed, you know, and uh, fortunate to sort of connect it up with all those people and a wonderful cast and everything. Yeah, great, absolutely great. But a very strange path. Most people in comedy, they start off sort of doing the one-liners for Weekend and Year's Jack and that kind of thing, mm-hmm. and then they gradually sort of build up a sort of portfolio that way. I've never been successful. I've never... I've never really tried, but I mean, I have occasionally sort of had a go at sketch writing that, and it's it's not something that I can I can do really, or not not do well, not do well enough. Yeah. Um. So it, it doesn't work for me. So I was just very very fortunate that that kind of avenue opened up.
1: That's yeah, that's incredible. I mean, what I, I, I found really interesting about what you were saying there as well was that thing of writing funny letters to family members and things <laughs> like that, and it's I think that's really under underappreciated really, you're under acknowledged as a route into writing because i'm um, you know sometimes when you're doing writing events and people say how did you get into writing how did you know that you know how did you find your voice or whatever and i think so often people don't actually think well you've been writing yeah what, you know and and if you know maybe you've been writing really hilarious emails to your friends for years <laughs> or maybe yeah. you've just been honing your storytelling tales you know Talking to your pals at work on a Monday, but we yeah. we do that, don't you? And I think yes.
2: And of course, what's really nice now is I think Twitter is is providing a platform, especially for women, to be very very funny. Yeah. And there are actually sort of stories of, of women getting publishing contracts and, and men as well, obviously, because of their their Twitter feed is so yeah. hilarious and they've got such a unique take on on the world that it's been spotted, which is lovely. I mean, how yeah. lovely that the, the gatekeepers are you know are, are seeing all this talent around and and finding alternative ways into the industry. I think that's that's wonderful.
1: Yeah. Really yeah.
2: wonderful. But you're right. Looking back, I can see that I was honing my craft, although I wouldn't have sort of said that at the time, you know. I I wouldn't even have understood the term at the time, I think. But yes, I used to, I didn't send the first draft off, you know, I'd send Mm. off the third draft, and I sort of really refined it, you know, to get every last juice of clarity (laughs) out of whatever it was that I was wringing dry there. So yeah, I was learning how to sort of put funny prose together. Yeah,
1: and it's, yeah, I think that's totally valid. People totally undervalue that part of themselves, but that's, uh, (laughs) it's really valuable. And so you started off with comedy, and you said yeah, you didn't you didn't start writing gags or doing sketches, whatever you were writing scripts. What was it that drew you to comedy? Was it just watching it on telly growing up, loving it, or what was? Were you just naturally a funny person, or was it more a love of comedy? Watching? Well,
2: I think I'm hilarious, obviously. <laughs>
1: um, yes, no,
2: I have always enjoyed comedy. I've always really, really liked comedy, but I never again really thought of it as something that I could do. I did once, sort of, in the kind of um, stand-up craze, think I might have a go, and then I sort of, you know, took two aspirin and lay down in a darkened room for half an hour and came to my senses. I thought I was—I thought I was a novelist. Mm. Uh, Growing up, that's what a writer was: somebody who wrote books. And I had many, uh, you know, a a sort of an unfinished draft, first draft of an appalling first novel, in various sort of bottom drawers, and I couldn't do it. And in that sort of time that I was describing when I was getting kind of frustrated with myself, thinking, well, if you're serious about this, why don't you get on and, and finish the damn thing? Why don't you do it? Well, why don't you? And it literally was, this is going to sound again like the most appalling cliche, but I did have a light bulb moment when I suddenly thought, actually, I could write comedy. And I could actually write specifically drama rather than, you know, people talking and other people can can say these words that I'm writing rather than me just writing it down and people read them. Um, maybe I could do that, and that was literally quite life-changing. That I hadn't even occurred to me before that that was something that I could could do. And once I saw that, that's what that's what gave me the impetus to actually get on and and jack in the job, and go for it. And as I said, I was I was really really fortunate. Um, also, I should mention that I sent some, uh, material off to a few sort of comedians at the time, and uh, I mean, looking back, I think God, I, you know, I go hot with shame. <laughs> it was really and the only person who wrote back was lenny henry bless his heart he wrote me a handwritten note back oh, wow. which was incredibly encouraging mm-hmm. and and saying you know this was good this was good this needs more work good luck and i thought what a sweet person you know yeah. incredibly kind that this this random woman <laughs> that contacts you out of nowhere and you've you know you've taken the, the trouble to sort of come you know come back if i'd love to meet him one day just say thanks so much that meant yeah. a lot to me that really really, really did mean a lot Yes, so I did have a light bulb moment and I did suddenly think, oh yes, I can actually write drama and scripts rather than, than novels. And now I can write novels, but I had to go through that long, long process first. Not that it was like an apprenticeship, but I, I, that absolutely was where... Um, where you were at. Where I was at, yeah. absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And if I hadn't had that long, long experience and, and that refinement of that particular area of craft, I certainly wouldn't be able to write novels now. I still would be rubbish, I think um hopefully I'm not rubbish anymore and it's like theatre i mean i came to theatre incredibly late and again it was just this this absolute belief that i was not clever enough you know i wasn't intellectual enough i didn't have the education the formal education mm. it wasn't again for the likes of me and and again of course you know i found that actually i could do it you know i could yeah. it was it was all right you know i could i could actually do it
1: you must be brave to take on those challenges because it can be overwhelming that sense, like this isn't for me. But you're, I mean, first of all, giving up your job the way you did. And, you know, so there's that, you know, it's that blend of um, self-doubt and self-belief, I guess, that you're constantly sort of grappling with. And
2: that's naturally of every writer, really. I mean, crippling self-doubt and, you know, alarming what's far, I think, are kind of (laughs) what get you through, really. You sort of have to have a a bit of both, I think, to, um, yeah, and, and try and keep them, the scales kind of, relatively level
1: <laughs> yeah absolutely so who who were your comic influences when you when you were sort of um you know writing your funny letters and thinking i you know not necessarily thinking i want to write comedy but what were the sort of comedy things you'd see on tv that you think oh yeah i wish i could do that or i love that
2: well i mean going back to childhood i used to really enjoy sitcoms obviously mm-hmm. as i got older monty python yeah you, know, you can't escape that i think and I had to sort of watch it with a very disapproving parent in the room. <laughs> I can st- to this day I can still hear you know my mother sort of, <laughs> <laughs> <you know. laughs> well it's just ridiculous, isn't it? It's just that's not funny. That's just it's just ridiculous, oh. um, and, and all with having to sort of get past that. And then when I was writing my funny letters, I mean uh, things like the young ones and that, mm. you know, Great Rick Mail and, and French and Saunders, all those sort were of really terrific things. And again, I think that was that was part of it. That suddenly, it wasn't old men, you know, looking like they were playing snooker in the kind of bow ties and everything, <laughs> doing these, you know, mother-in-law jokes and sort yeah. of in, in working men's clubs, sort of with the air blue with cigar smoke kind of thing. So I think that was part of the rock and roll then of the eighties, and that any, anyone could do stand-up. And although, as I said, I couldn't do stand-up clearly, it, it was part of the thing of oh yes, actually, maybe comedy is, is something that I can do.
1: Did you say watching Monty Python with a disapproving parent? I remember. <laughs> my my dad used to go out to the pub most evenings and I would always be really really trying to sort of chivvy him out the door on nights when the young ones were going to be on because I knew he'd hate it and I wouldn't really be able to watch it with him in the room so I'd always sort of like you know oh it's about time (laughs) (laughs) and uh, then anxiously kind of checking he wasn't coming back too early but yes it's it's kind of there's there's nothing more painful than watching comedy with someone who doesn't find it funny it's excruciating
2: except possibly watching Top of the Pops I think (laughs) the 1970s with with them parents who you know were were pulled because we I go right back to um to, to you know glam rock yeah and then what, what, what? look at the state of that <laughs> <laughs> but it was great it was great to be alive <laughs>
0: <laughs> that was lucy flannery in conversation with Catherine o'flynn you can find out more about lucy on the rlf website And that concludes episode 395, which was recorded by Catherine O'Flynn and produced by Kona McPhee. Coming up in episode 396, in the second part of this interview, Lucy speaks with Catherine about creative phases, live theatre and adapting the classics. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.